The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And joining us today, we are so happy to have... Deb Eschmeyer, who is a Food and Society Policy Fellow. She also manages the media and marketing for the National Farm to School Network. And uh, not last and least, uh, but probably most important, you are also a farmer living on a fifth-generation farm in Ohio. And I know you have a passion for tomatoes. And before we got started, I asked you the most important question facing tomato farmers today, and that is, have you had blight? And you said no. And I wonder why that is. Well, first off, thank you for having me. And secondly, I think right now we are far enough away in Ohio from the initial spread. and um, But we have unfortunately had a lot of the cold nights, but we haven't had the rain, which the rest of the Northeast had. So I think by by getting rid of the precipitation, we've avoided some of the blight. Very interesting. Well, we are... We all love tomatoes, so we're all very concerned about this on a national (laughs) level. Uh, But we are going to talk today about something that's very important, and that has to do with school lunch and the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. And I know as a parent, um, I've been concerned about school food with many other parents for many years, and it sounds like maybe for the first time we're going to be making some important inroads Before we got started, I I said that I had read a fascinating statistic that farm-to-school programs, which basically link local farmers with schools, have increased in number from fewer than 10 in 1997 to more than an estimated 2,000 programs in 2008. So, boy, kudos to everyone who has made that work. And, Deb, I know you're at the heart of this. So tell me something. First of all, how did school lunch come to be? What is the history of school lunch? Yes, and, and that's a great intro question. Um, the school lunch programs were actually born in the post-World War II era with the goal of improving national security, which is something that we need to keep top of mind now with an overfed and malnourished um, childhood issue. And the purpose of the programs were basically to improve the nutritional status of future soldiers. And they were expanded in the 60s and the 70s as part of the civil rights struggle to reduce hunger and poverty. But now, in, the, in 2009, with our nations, again, in, this, in the era of, of an overfed, malnourished um, childhood ep- epidemic and the survival of family farming at risk, it really is this perfect storm to revamp the child nutrition programs to enable more schools and, in effect, more children to really benefit from the access to healthier school meals. Yeah, I'm really excited about this program. Like you, I see it as a national security issue. Mm -hmm. I see it as a way to restore our rural communities Mm -hmm. and to feed children a more healthful variety, more biodiverse arrangement of foods in our system. I mean, right now what we're looking at is this onslaught of commodity foods. I know that, you know, again, as a parent, the the advent of those horrible vending machines and soft drinks and snacks and alternatives to the the square meal that I remember from my childhood have been competing with 
with a good standard school lunch. So I don't know, maybe we should talk a little bit about commodity foods, what they are, and mm-hmm. how these competitive foods worked their way into the school food service. Yes, and well, to begin with, when you take the plate, you take the average lunch tray, it costs about 257 for the federal reimbursement for if you if there was a free lunch it would be 257 but it actually costs the school food service $2.92 on average but out of that 292 only a dollar is spent on the food the rest of it goes to labor to keep the lights on you know all the other components of bringing the plate to the to the kids so when you have a dollar Commodity foods provide about 20% of that dollar. So it's actually a pretty heavy investment in what ends up on the plate. And when we say commodity foods, you know, that includes apples and cherries and flour, butter, rice, meat. Like those, that's the range of commodity foods. And the commodity food program actually changed names very recently to US, um, USDA foods, healthy foods. And it's, it's not provided for any school breakfast. It's only for lunch. And it has to come from the United States. And nearly 60% of the commodity foods purchased for the child nutrition programs must be determined by the department to be in surplus. So that's why you tend to see a lot more meat and milk and flour and cheese because it's bought off the market as a surplus commodity. Oh, I see. So how does the... uh how do the competitive foods work then? How did they work their way into this food service? Well, food service has to operate as a for-profit, basically. And what we're seeing is that when the schools need to operate in the black, they tend to, they tend to bring in competitive foods. And that ends up, as you mentioned, um, I believe the statistic is like 97% of high schools have some form of fast food within the campus, within the cafeteria campus. So when you really think about that, that would mean, you know, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, what have you, is actually serving in where your kids are having lunch every day. So when you're competing against that as the National School Lunch Program, you've got a high standard to meet in regards to what kids are going to purchase every day. And so one of the first things we have, and many advocates have fought for, is to make sure that the competitive foods that are being sold within the school campus, within the school cafeteria, have to meet the same nutritional standards as the USDA dietary guidelines. Mm, Absolutely. That would be a great first step. Well, in getting the more healthful foods in then, if we're looking at surplus kinds of foods, we don't have a lot of sur- surplus cherries and broccoli and it seems like we're importing more of those foods. So how can we get more healthful foods onto those students' trays? Well, the first thing that we recommend for farm to school programs, and I should probably define farm to school just as a start. Um, for those not familiar, farm to school programs are meant to connect school food with local agriculture to create a strategy that increases the profitability of farming, which is really key. We work so that it's economically viable for the farmer, and it also improves the quality of the school meals and recreates that relationship with the community among the children and the farmers. And that's one big piece of Farm to School. It is a very complex program. It's not just about local food procurement. It really does include 
school gardens and farm field trips and the experiential learning of hands-on education of actually touching the beets and the broccoli and, you know, understanding that why people cry when they cut an onion. <laughs> right. Just those experiences that, that are true to form of the education of cooking as was recently highlighted in the Michael Pollan article on, on cooking, actually. Well, with only a dollar to spend on food, how do we make it so that the farmers can make a living selling their food to schools? Well, what we're advocating for has, and what we've worked with in the system for over the last 10 years, we've seen that it's a myth that farm-to-school programs are more expensive or the local foods are more expensive. That's not always the case. Because when you buy in bulk and in season from anywhere, whether it's your local farmer's market stand or where, what have you, you'll notice that it's much cheaper than what you'll find usually in the grocery store. And one case in point is um, in Baltimore, a local peach is $0.08, cents, but to purchase the high fructose corn syrup fruit cocktail, that was $0.14. Cents. So it was actually cheaper and healthier to have a whole peach on the plate versus the fruit cocktail. Mm. Well, you know, one of the barriers that I've always heard whenever we've tried to change the food system locally is that, well, you know, we, we don't have enough staff, we're underfunded, we our, our kitchen is too small, we don't have the facilities or the staff to prepare fresh whole foods. How do you respond to those concerns? Well, what we first do is we take an assessment of what currently does exist. And in many cases, there are those concerns. There is a problem with not having knives in the cafeteria. There's a problem with maybe not having a working kitchen. And thankfully, in the economic stimulus package, there was $100 million for school lunch equipment improvements. And that money has been spent mainly on enabling fresh food to be prepared by bringing in knives or bringing in proper refrigeration and, and actually having a stove in the cafeteria kitchen so that we can actually prep real food. Um, and, and what we see with this is that food service structures are the champions of farm to school. There are so many amazing, amazing food service structures out there like Doug Davis, um, and what they're doing, Doug Davis in Vermont in particular comes to mind, is that they've been working to, to work within the system, within the National School Lunch Program, within the Commodity Program, and making it work so he can finagle the budget, so he can buy what's local and, and what's in season. And in Vermont, they're able to have a local food on that plate every single day of the school year, whether it's March or September. He can guarantee that he's bringing in something local, whether it's strawberries or peaches or, um, you know, local chicken. It's, it's really taking the effort to assess what's in your community and making that connection and trying to bring it into the cafeteria. That's amazing, isn't it? Because typically what people will say, even, even based here in Missouri, and I'm sure you hear it in Ohio, is that, well, you know, that's fine for California because yeah. they have a great <laughs> growing season. But those of us with a real winter, we can't do it. And then you have an example from Vermont. Are they using a lot of season extension technology? Well, exactly that, and they have great programs where um, in the summer they'll ha they have a program where the kids will harvest the strawberries and they'll freeze them so the strawberries are used throughout the school year. And they also have these really innovative and fun programs like the Junior Iron Chef competition, and they have 
the kid, these middle schoolers create recipes of only local in-season ingredients in March. So we're talking root crops, beets, what have you, and they're creating that into a, a, a recipe that's going to be served in the cafeteria, and then it's published into a cookbook that the school's food service can use. And, of course, the kids are going to eat it because they made the recipe, and they're proud of the recipe, and they're, and they're basically taking pride in what their community is growing and then eating it throughout the school year. That, that is just fantastic. And I'm sure economically, I don't know if anybody's been collecting the data, but this must be a huge boon to those rural Vermont communities where farmers are hoping to stay on their land. Right, right. And we do. We have data coming from, from various parts of the country of what funds are being circulated back into the community. And we do see that every dollar spent in a farm, on and in a farm to school program gets circulated one to three times more within the local community. So that's, that's very heartening. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Deb Eschmeyer. She is a Food and Society Policy Fellow, and she manages the media and marketing for the National Farm to School Network. And I have to add that she's also a farmer on a fifth-generation farm growing heirloom fruits and vegetables. Deb, tell me, I know that you've been working um, very diligently with the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. Mm-hmm. How does that tie into the movement to get farmers and schools reconnected? Yes, we've been working on child nutrition, and it goes directly with helping farmers and helping kids. It's, it's actually it's a great win-win program for us. The Child Nutrition Reauthorization, it's something that's reauthorized and actually the Child Nutrition Act that's reauthorized every four to five years. And it's, I know when you start talking legislation, uh, you know, we tend to just kind of glaze over. Right. <laughs> but, but this is something that it actually determines what 30 million children eat in school every day for 180 days a year, or five days a week for 180 days a year. And that really should resonate with us because that's over five billion lunches served in a year. And when we think about that, that's a lot, and we can really have a true impact on what kids are eating and an investment in the future through the Child Nutrition Act. And what we see as a great opportunity is we had a national farm-to-school grant program authorized in 2004, but unfortunately um, it was never appropriated any funding because it was discretionary and not mandatory. So this round we're asking for $50 million mandatory funding for farm-to-school programs. And I, I truly think that when you put the math and you think about the math about that, it's, it truly is a drop in the bucket. And the reason I say that is, is that if a child is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, which we see now one in three children born after the year 2000 will be diagnosed with diabetes, that's one in two if a child is black or Hispanic. And you think about that number and it's, it just, it shakes, you know, really does shake you. And knowing that if a child is diagnosed, that will cost more than $3 million in their lifetime. And it's known to shorten their lifespan by 10 to 20 years. It's really scary statistics. But we have an opportunity to make it possible that every day in the cafeteria, the kids can have something, can have access to healthy, good food. And if we just spent $100 million to provide good, real fresh, high-quality food to kids in schools, and we just prevented 33 kids from getting diabetes, it would already pay for itself. Just 33 kids and $100 million. 
And when you think about that with those numbers, we could, we could, we could make a huge difference with just a, a national farm to school grant program. And it's, it's truly a, do, a drop in the budget, a drop in the bucket when you think about the budget that our uh, Congress has been dealing with lately. Yeah, this seems like such a wonderful preventive strategy to keep children well. Uh, it seems like a no-brainer, you know, to invest those dollars in, in making those connections with rural communities and supporting mm-hmm. farmers and children's health. So one of the things we want to do is we want to contact our legislators, our Congress people, uh, senators and representatives, and we want them specifically, Deb, to ask for mandatory funding mm-hmm. for farm to school. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. What else do we need? The other pieces are really to truly strengthen nutrition standards for the school meal programs and competitive foods, which we mentioned earlier, and to improve access to the child nutrition programs, making it easier to apply for the reduced and free lunches, and to also increase reimbursement rates by at least 35 cents, knowing that there's a discrepancy between what the actual school lunch costs and what they're being reimbursed for. You know, it always amazed me with the competitive foods. It seemed like if the schools were being reimbursed when children bought a meal, that it would be in their best interest not to have competitive foods. Mm -hmm. But I guess the competitive foods, are they bringing in more money than the reimbursement? Well, there's also other attachments to the competitive foods. Um, There's the endorsements from, for Mm -hmm. example, like if you bring in Pepsi and they buy the scoreboard. And if, if um, I don't know if you've ever been on school board or, or if I'm sure or you've been through this, noticing these things pop up on the school cafeteria and the school grounds. But all of those pieces cost, that's, that's basically, that's funding coming in to the school that it's hard to compete against. It absolutely is. Now, I have to ask you, as part of this Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, is there a statement in there about keeping those competitive foods out? There are definitely initiatives working towards that. Um, we, as the National Farm to School Network, have focused really on the local food initiatives and the procurement policies because we know there's so many advocates working hard for the competitive foods. We have a lot of allies out there that are making that their number one agenda. So it, they, there's definitely folks out there. And we can put that link on our website. If people visit our site, we can definitely link to it. That's a great idea. Let's tell everyone what the website is. Yes, our website is www.farm2school.org. Okay, and when we visit there, we can find all kinds of the, the legalities of the act as well as action steps. Is that correct? Exactly. And if, if folks are just interested more in more about Farm to School or want to click on their state and to see where there are some local farmers that they can work with or local nonprofits, we have that all on our all on our website for all the states. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic website. It's very informative. I've I've clicked on different states to see how they compare. I want to ask you something about what you said earlier about the hundred million going for the infrastructure of the kitchens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that enough? <laughs> I, no, I, I don't think it's enough, but it's a great start. Yeah, and we're actually seeing a lot of reinvestment into the quality of the infrastructure. And part of that is not just the investment in the infrastructure, but it's the investment in the people. It's actually investment in the training of the food service and, and being proud of the food that we're serving our kids and actually being proud in the, in the, in the 
format and the method that it gets there. You know, I had this idea that if we could make every school board member and every principal and every teacher eat in the school cafeteria, if that was a, a rule, that if you were a part of the school district, that that was part of the rule, you had to eat in the cafeteria, that I thought that that might really change things much faster. It would act as a catalyst, if you will. Because I think I, that's a great idea. Could we write that into the act, perhaps? I don't know. I think that's fantastic. And I, I think it's, it's part of the reason why... Um, Speaker Pelosi had put together and pushed for the the local food cafeteria right now in the House of Representatives, and they have you know local and organic food available in their cafeteria. So why can't we have that possible across the schools in the nation? Exactly, I've eaten there actually, and it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than some of the best restaurants in Washington D.C. Let's oh, see, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if people were lining up to eat in school cafeterias because we could get your heirloom to tomatoes locally, (laughs) so it would be wonderful. Well, okay, let's talk a little bit about what parents can do. They're going to hear you speak. They're going to be emotionally charged to make a difference. Uh, Other than visiting the website, what what can parents do for us? I think so often we feel helpless. Yeah, and I think part of it is just starting the conversation. And and we know that it's not easy. You know, this, this is something where... You can tell yourself, um, you know, you're going to want to revamp the whole entire school program. You're going to want to do everything at once. You're going to want to start the school garden and the farm tour and everything. And the best way to start is to truly take a small step. You know, plan on having a group meeting of other interested parents and start talking about, okay, where are the local farmers? Let's bring in the food service director and let's have a conversation about where do they procure their apples from? Can we get them from the local orchard in the fall? And can we do a taste testing of the varieties of apples for the kids? And we can have them visit the orchard. And then maybe the next year, step it up with, let's try to bring in some local greens with a salad bar. And, and it's just, it's like any true democratic effort. It's, it's starting by organizing and, and assessing what we have on the ground and then working together and making it happen. And it's one of the reasons why I respect and just to enjoy farm to school programs so much is because to me it is the epitome of a food democracy because it brings together the farmers, the students, the teachers, the parents, and they're all working together to bring a better school meal to the kids. And it, it's truly, to me, it is, it is such a wonderful program. Yeah, and I think involving students in the process is really brilliant, too. You know, whether they're in Vermont and they're creating recipes or whether they are, um, I know there was a case in, in Los Angeles, actually, where students were photographing their food environment and bringing those images to the school board and saying, you know, we, we want to change this. This isn't contributing to our health. And I think they were effective. Um, I think that students... They learn how to be members of a democracy when they go to a school board and they present the issue and create the ask. You know, they say what specifically they need and want. Exactly. And I've, I've had students call up saying, how do I raise money for a farm-to-school salad bar? And they'll put together some fundraising activities. We actually call them farm raisers. And, <laughs> and they help gather and collect the money that would go towards putting in the salad bar, which obviously goes 
way beyond just benefiting their class. And they've one of the, school, the schools actually brought in the salad bar, and then they they just kept going in from there, starting farm field trips, farmer um, speakers in the classroom. Just one of those great examples of of the kids taking on and empowering themselves and, and bringing in better food. We have a local school here in Columbia, Missouri, where the Slow Food Group brought farmers into the classroom, had them talk about what it's like to be a farmer. They brought in their produce. Then the students in their art class, they did still life. And then they also did a cooking experience with the food. And it was the most wonderful experience where maybe, you know, children someday will say, when I grow up, I want to be a farmer. Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be fantastic. <laughs> well, I know, I know that we have a lot of, you know, we have parents that listen to this program. We also have farmers. Let's say there's a farmer. Um, I know a perfect example of a gentleman who had organic black beans, fabulous tasting black beans, but didn't really have a way to sell them, didn't know the path to take. Um, even for you, you know, you've got these amazing heirloom tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I know they're your passion. How do you, how, what can we tell farmers? How can that? How can they get their produce into the schools? It's it's picking up the phone. It's picking up the phone and having that conversation with the food service director, asking the question of what what do you need when? What's the quantity? What's what's the quality? And what what does it need to look like when it reaches you? It's having those conversations of and actually a lot of. Growers who already do a lot, do direct marketing, have all the systems already set up in place and they can just add the school into their routine. Because if you already have the insurance and you already have all the other systems in place, the school is just another diversified market to sell to when you may be running out of your other markets when the season starts up between, you know, August and May. Will the Farm to School website provide a resource for farmers in terms of what they need to sell to the school? Yes. We have some fact sheets to help out of having that first conversation and just the basic like food safety and other parameters that you need to be aware of. And we've actually, um, we're hoping to keep working with and build the relationship with the FFA and trying to, you know, reach out to the young farmers who can really start building this market. And that's the future farmers of America. That's a great idea. Deb, with just a, a minute left, is there anything that I have neglected to ask you that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, I just think checking out our website and finding out what local nonprofits and what local schools are doing is, is just a great start. And I, I neglected to ask you what your favorite school meal was. When I was a child? Yes. We used to have the most wonderful baked chicken. <laughs> and it, it's not the same. I know that in looking at what I ate as a child compared to what my daughter and son have had in the cafeteria it's completely different you know we didn't have soft drink machines I remember on one trip I was going home to a high school reunion and I brought my yearbook and my kids thought it was absolutely hilarious to look at the menu we actually had things like chow mein on our menu we had, we had, we had some great foods but um Oh, you know, we are, we are out of time. We could, we could now start a whole other half hour show on our school lunch experiences, um, as pleasant and as fun as those were. But I just want to thank you so much, Deb. We've been talking to Deb Eschmeyer, Food and Society Policy Fellow and the Manager and Media of Media and Marketing for the National Farm to School Network and a fabulous farmer herself. Uh, for more information, go to www.farmtoschool.org.
Uh, Deb, thank you for being with me. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And to close, I just want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Deb.